and you know the relationship the because people talk about it all the time but once you really start bonding with the instrument you're sharing dna i think and uh, and then it's really hard to to part from it in a way it just sounds like you even if the darn thing has got issues or falling apart or uh you know seasonal issues or whatever it's just it's it's you it's like getting a divorce when you when you move on Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh. For this podcast, I share with you my conversation with Vermont-born fiddler and songwriter Pete Sutherland. I met up with Pete in 2016 when he came to teach at the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes in Port Towns in Washington. My first encounter with Pete was back in the early 1980s at the Augusta Heritage Program in Elkins, West Virginia, where I taught a course each summer on the art of storytelling. Pete was at Augusta to teach old-time fiddle, and I was drawn both to his music and his personality. So it is with genuine pleasure that I share this conversation about violins, old-time music, and the generation of young players who are embracing this unique form of traditional music. So, Pete, uh, I always start with asking people um, their story, particularly their family story. I have a fascination with family stories. So any stories that are related to music are great, but even other stories. You know, how, where are you from and how'd you get here? Right, sure. Uh, well, I'm a Vermonter and was born and raised there. I lived there again after a few other adventures and... Um, my family uh, were New Englanders from a long way back and, and in one direction Vermonters from a long way back. So even now as I uh, approach uh, late middle age, I guess to say charitably, um, I feel ever more a part of the landscape. And um, the music itself uh, kind of for me has come from a lot of uh, chance meetings, I guess, um, encountering old time music, which is not, of course, native to uh, to my place. Not not the kind of old time music that I that I got excited about initially. Um, was really a couple of chance meetings with people, literally kind of wandering by or observing them at a campfire or something like that. What I was raised with was um, Broadway and opera and light jazz and some of what we would call kind of proto-easy listening or something, which were all the preferences of my parents. My mother particularly was uh, a very accomplished pianist. She did not teach me, sent me out for lessons very wisely, um, but there was a lot of music in the house to listen to, and we, we kind of absorbed that and were putting on our own versions of little backyard Broadway shows and so forth um, when I was a kid, and so that's... That's my culture, very 50s and 60s. What, and, what was your dad's work and your mom's work? Uh, my dad worked at General Electric. He was a career guy there um, in uh, management and teaching young up-and-coming managers effective presentation. Uh, my parents were both English majors, and my, my mom was a homemaker, and then she went to work uh, as the school librarian for quite a few years, but... Musically, she was one of those people that everybody called on uh, for accompaniment. She was a very good sight reader. So uh, we like to say weddings, funerals, anything, and uh, <laughs> and school plays and, and church going, and everything else. Yeah, and going back further in your, your lineage on either side, uh, have you discovered that there was maybe a player you didn't know about? Or? Very little, very little. Uh, amazing. Um, it, it either just wasn't talked about or wasn't considered to be, you know, part of the culture that, that of the stories that got passed on. So um, I'm sure there probably was. I do have my granddad's fiddle, and the story there was that he didn't play. It was uh, one of those, and I think there's a lot of families like this where an instrument gets passed down. It's just been in the family, and eventually it's just a thing to pass along like a bureau, and um, no one remembers anything about 
any particular family member that actually played the darn thing and or was you know noted for it or anything like that so well you, you wrote a song <laughs> some years ago that I just I love to death especially because of this interest I have in family stories and that's Aunt Sue right oh yeah yeah we'll talk about Aunt Sue a little so bit. and that's kind of a chance thing too which I, I hopefully told well in this song but I hopefully told well in this song but um, I got into after I got into uh, folk music of various kinds and was really curious about um, lineage and had kind of come up dry as I as I said <laughs> it wasn't much of a um, a story to 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 delve into it in fact um, a couple of the collections from our um, from our uh, folklorist Helen Hartness Flanders up in Vermont and New England um, surfaced in a used bookstore in uh, Vermont ballads and folk songs and the Green Mountain, New Green Mountain Songster. Uh, she was a collector in the 30s uh, uh, with a grant from the Roosevelt administration along with a lot of other good public works grants and cultural missions that he uh, fostered uh, during the Depression. Uh, her husband was a senator, Senator Ralph Flanders, and so she, she was a woman of means and she had time and, uh, and she got this stipend to go looking for folk songs and uh, old, old songs. And um, they really weren't sure at the time that there were any out there. Nobody had done this work. And Vermont, being a rural state and very disconnected at that time, uh, it just nobody knew what was out there in this little family compound or this hollow or this little town. So uh, she, uh, I, I have great admiration for her stamina for the thing because no really hope of, of uh, success there, but she trundled around in a, in a uh, car with a big, uh, I forget what you call it, like a rumble seat or something, and in it was this god-awfully big piece of technology, uh, a wire recorder, and uh, she schlepped that thing into uh, various people's homes. But in the end, she, she found a lot of songs she collected over the years, she kept going after the stipend ran out and had allies and went into New Hampshire and Maine and Massachusetts and even Rhode Island. And, and she found over 15 years about 9,000 songs and a smaller number of fiddle tunes just kind of as a byproduct. So anyway, long story, but uh, a couple of her, uh, a couple of the books of the, from the collection surfaced in my, on my radar. And so on page two of one of them was a song uh, collected from somebody whose name was very familiar to me. So I told the story of that in uh, in the song that you mentioned, Aunt Sue. Um, Susan Montague was her name, and she was my dad's aunt. Uh, and in Woodstock, Vermont, where he was from, there's a whole neighborhood of people who at that time, in my childhood, were uh, second cousins, and, and uh, it's just so, a place to go. So you discovered a song that had come from your family into this collection. Yeah, yeah, and very back door. <laughs> yeah, and you knew nothing about it. Really. Not a bit, and it turned out, you know, I was just getting sort of uh, uh, hardwired for, uh, for like, looking for something that sounded old. You know, I was coming from, I, in high school I played rock and roll, so this was all an adventure for me. Let's listen now to Pete perform his song, Aunt Sue, and is followed by the fiddle tune Motley, from his music CD, Poor Man's Dream. One day in a bookstore, I happened to look, and I found her name written in an old songbook. A ballad she'd given them was printed on the page, just the way her mother sang it in her old age. Well, I asked my daddy, did you know your Aunt Sue? Did she sing the Gypsy Davy or two sisters for you? With your milk and your cookies, did she serve you up a song? Oh, Dad, you remember, though it's been so long. And I know more tunes than the man in the moon. And each flying phrase is a sweet living thing. But I lay down this fiddle Just once could I hear My dad's and Susan sing Dad kind of chuckled 
he nodded his head Your great aunt Sue's quiet character, he said She could tan living hair off a young boy's hide She could tell us kids a story, make us laugh till we cried But songs I don't remember couldn't tell you what kind she must have known some hymns, though I wouldn't have paid no mind. Those old folks were always singing some old parlor song. More than that, I couldn't tell you. It's been too long. And I know more tunes than man in the moon. And each flying phrase is a sweet living thing. But I lay down this fiddle. Just once could I hear my dad's and Susan sing. Once the songs were passed along from mother down to child And each family sang them in their own fine style Songs that seemed they'd last forever Soon grew stranger every day Until no one cared to listen And they faded away Well I had to learn Aunt Susan's song From that old book I bought I could sing it for you now Right or wrong, it's all I got for the voice that could have taught me has been still some forty years I just strain to hear an echo that will never reach my ears And I know more tunes than man in the moon And each flying phrase is a sweet living thing But I lay down this fiddle Just once could I hear my dad's and Susan sing and I know more tunes than the man in the moon And each flying phrase is a sweet living thing But I lay down this fiddle Just once could I hear my dad's and Susan I'd lay down this fiddle just once could I hear my dad's Aunt Susan sing. And at that time, I was pursuing the fiddle, of course, avidly and not necessarily having much attention to anything else. So I, it's really sort of a, a song about uh, being humbled by an encounter and realizing the value of something that you, you had maybe uh, ignored or overlooked. When I was first learning this tradition, I would meet these older men in West Virginia yeah. who would say, and maybe they were, they were still playing at that point, or they were playing when I met them, yeah. but they're in their 70s, and they would talk about having stopped playing the fiddle for 30 or 40 years. Oh, common, I think, yeah, to raise a family. Yeah, and I was so obsessed with the instrument, <laughs> as you probably knew that experience at yeah. that time. It was such a, a wonderful world to have discovered and it was almost unimaginable that anyone who could, you know, have that gift and could play the fiddle, and usually they were good fiddlers, yeah. how, you, couldn't, you couldn't lay that down. Yeah. And I heard your song, <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, you know, because they're laying the fiddle down for, to raise a family or to do things to that work. were important yeah. have, had to happen, because yeah. the fiddle can eat up an enormous amount of time. Yeah. We haven't talked about that in many of the interviews, but uh, 
what it requires from us. Yeah. So let's go back true. a little bit back to Vermont, and you're, sure. we, we now had a little rock and roll thrown in, which is not unusual. <laughs> no, uh, not so, at my edge. Yeah, Daryl Anger, <laughs> uh, he, uh, I interviewed Daryl Anger, and he said the Beatles were just like, uh, you know, just this huge mountain that landed on his head. Or uh, He had another phrase. Same for here, it. yeah, age 13. It's, it's an impressionable age <laughs> all and around. What year were you born? I, I was born in 51, so I was, yep, so they came to Ed Sullivan in 64, right, I think. And, uh, and, and we weren't big watchers of Ed Sullivan, but somehow the word had gotten out. <laughs> really? And we all were there. I was at my neighbor's, I remember, watching. And, uh, yeah, life-changing. <laughs> Yeah. And so uh, you went to college, and then when did you hit the road and start? Well, in college is where I actually, it was a couple of years uh, that I didn't, I wasn't playing any music. I was really working on writing. I was, I was thought I was going to be a, you know, a genius and have things published in the New Yorker immediately. And so I had a couple of um, great teachers of writing, and I was just kind of putting that same energy, the music energy into that and kind of forgetting about music and you know, just not playing. And then again, I, a chance encounter, somebody got me to go to a, a, what they called a hootenanny club, folk club meeting, which is just a bunch of guys sitting around picking and occasionally they'd have a guest. So I it was my first encounter with folk instruments up close because I had not grown up with any of that. There was nothing at all in my my parents were not folkies, you know, would probably have turned off the radio if they heard anything that sounded remotely like that. And I'm not sure their their politics went quite as deep, but, you know, the the whole thing with the Weavers and Pete Seeger and the Blacklist and, and all of that. So, I, you know, that was all, like, out of my consciousness entirely. So just to sit next to somebody playing a banjo or a mandolin, I don't remember any fiddles, um, it's, you know, just encountering, like, Martians or something. It's, <laughs> What is this? <laughs> and and I was still listening to uh, Led Zeppelin and you know all the Woodstock era stuff and um, and not just not aware. I was just not aware. <laughs> so it was like scratching the ground and coming up with some artifact or something. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> very interesting. And then I moved into a rooming house with a bunch of guys the year after, out of the the Godforsaken dorm and. Um, and there on my bed in my little room, somebody had left Pete Seeger's banjo book. Oh, the famous red... The red book. Yeah, the, any of that long uh, yeah, banjo. Yeah, yeah. That's the only thing in the room. <laughs> I was... Where did that come from? So that was a sign or something, I think. I mean, I was kind of matter-of-fact about it. Huh? Well, that's interesting. But, um, and so I, it kind of went from there, and then I got a banjo and was attempting to play Scrug style miserably for about a year. And, and then I became aware slowly of Clawhammer. And, and then as soon as I got some records, LPs, uh, with, with that kind of music on there, still listening to Led Zeppelin, <laughs> um, you know, then I, I realized there was this, there was this other thing was this fiddle. And, and it was at that point, these are all the chance encounters it was at that point <clears throat> that my, grandfather was just retiring and he said well I have something for you because he knew I'd been playing the banjo and he brought this fiddle the family fiddle it was in a paper bag in pieces like literally in pieces you know literally in a paper bag <laughs> and he said yeah, I think you should have this I had no clue you know whether it was even fixable or who to ask or anything like that I was like okay well so I put that in a uh, you know my closet or something like that and then the next week my hippie brother and his girlfriend came by the house, my parents' house, I was on vacation or something, and um, and uh, and she had a fiddle, his, my brother's girlfriend, and she said, well, we're, uh, it turned out they were going to hitchhike across the country to California to join a commune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. all speaks of the period, doesn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. It's my period. <laughs> I, I know these days. Yeah, right. Exactly. We do. Um, and so she left me her fiddle, and I just started scratching away, and um, and then encountered this kind of crazy guy my age who was reasonably good. I thought he was a genius. He was just reasonably good and very effusive with his style, and I, I kind of sat watching him and picked up some things. So it went on from there, and uh, encountering, um, uh, you know, some of the the Irish music that was coming into the country at that point with the Boys of the Lock and um, 
And then somebody had the presence of mind to to give me a couple of records of Galax music, uh, you know, with all these different sort of approaches to string band music. And some of it sounded too crazy for me, and some of it was just struck a, such a core, you know, for me. And I think it was just the it was just the the wildness of it. I said this in a class the other day, and I still I feel like that's a pursuit. Uh, you know, always of old time music. It, it, you know, even if I've played more refined styles of music, I feel like that is always wanting to get out the wildness part. So hopefully I, I don't abandon that ever. But it, that struck me the same way that that all my rock and roll did. It's, it's difficult to explain. And, I, it, you know, it, it might be just kind of my my filter after all these years. But I could listen to, you know... Eric Clapton and Cream, and I could listen to uh, the Rolling Stones bashing something out, and I could put on Tommy Gerald and Fred Cockerham and kind of get the same effect on me. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, I uh, lived in the same town with Alistair Fraser for some years, and mm. um, one time I, I saw him give a, a workshop, and he played a Scottish tune of some sort, and played it straight. I mean, he didn't he didn't emphasize that you know it's real straight, but he just basically played the notes, played them very well. And then he said, "But you know, that's not really the Scottish music uh, that I love." And then he played it again with some ornaments, but it weren't just the ornaments; it was that wildness, yeah, and the sense that this stuff's on the ragged edge, yeah, exactly. And uh, and I I'm very drawn to that myself. <laughs> yeah, and word I overuse sometimes. My wife laughs as uh, shamanism, <laughs> but you know how is the uh, the violin itself the shamanistic instrument? Almost like some kind of drum in Mongolia that sets up a rhythm. And uh, that seems to do something to the psyche. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not a word I use, and I'll, I'll totally buy that. Uh, well, yeah. I, I remember when I first started hearing your music, and you know, it came to me in a cassette tape, which a lot of what was going on at that time. Yeah. So uh, these cassette tapes were going around, and uh, and I was really, really heard your. You, the way you approach the tune really appealed to me. And I find that in the years I've been playing, I have this thing where I play um, Southern Appalachian music and then I play uh, Celtic music. Yeah. And I'm not a session player. I don't play that whole repertoire. So if I went to Galway or something, I couldn't sit in a session probably. But I have, you know, probably 50 unusual tunes I've picked up over time I just love. And, yeah. and I find that it's... Um, it's really been helpful for me to play both. They're, they're different in, in so many ways. I was also playing a central West Virginia style, which is a little notier than that Galax, right. you know, less less rhythm yeah. uh, driven. As, yeah. uh, you know, you have the more of the horn pipes and things. Right, a little more Scottish. Yeah. yeah, Scottish melodies. Yeah. Right. So uh, when did you give up the straight life and decide, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think I bypassed the straight life. So I was an English major, and I, and I did get my degree, but at... Uh, very tellingly, I missed my college graduate, or I skipped my college graduation because I had a gig. <laughs> it's true, and <laughs> a wedding gig. So I was playing in a string band. I had encountered a, a, just this very interesting collection of people my senior year. This is at University of Vermont, um, and um, including um, a mandolin player who was this hippie kid wandering around in Burlington, not knowing where he was going, that had. Um, been playing bluegrass, but had gotten interested in old-time music. Um, a farmer who had was a pretty good climber, banjo player, who was hanging around at the folk club at the university, um, but he had been to the Newport Folk Festival all a bunch of times, so he had this other knowledge base. And then a violin player who had taken a few lessons with Jay Unger, and she was in town um, wondering where she was going to go next, and just was kind of like a Gilligan's Island <laughs> collection of people that came together. And um, and then this guy from California, David Green, who had played in Bertram Levy's band and knew all of the hollow rock string band tunes, mm -hmm. when I really didn't know one tune from another, uh, he'd come up to Vermont to uh, be a producer at Philo Records, which was new then, which I live about a mile from the barn at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, 
and he so he had this vast number of tunes. Uh, he's a gnarly character, I can say now <laughs> on tape. <laughs> He'd be proud of it. Um, but he had all these tunes, and and he was very patient, and he sat me down, and he recorded like 150 tunes. So I. I had this great storehouse, you know, for a clueless young person, you know, where it was literally all rock and roll, all rock and roll. And he just gave me such a grounding. And so uh, he played with us some, and his wife was a creative writing professor that I had at UVM, and she was a square dance scholar. She was from West Virginia. So she got up there and uh, and said, we should have a dance uh, up at the student center. And and. I think it was about the first night that we were all actually in the same room together. She said, come on up. We're going to play a square dance. We had no idea what we were going to do or how it went or anything. So it kind of went from there uh, that, um, you know, the die was cast. <laughs> this was my senior year. And then uh, we quickly sort of organized ourselves enough. So, um, you know, we, we just started getting gigs because it was a novelty sound to have a string band at that point. And, uh, you know, every third person would say, you're playing bluegrass um, badly <laughs> or something. Um, but it kind of went on from there. And so one band to another, and uh, and there you go. Here I am. So I didn't have a straight job. <laughs> let's talk about this relationship with the instrument itself. So sure. when did, let's say, the first... Uh, uh, sweetheart fiddle come into your life. And, well, uh, you know, I, I have not had a real deep sweetheart. <laughs> I, I kind of play what's in front of me. The The most interesting one that I had for a long time, I was doing a New Year's Eve gig in a bar out in the wilds of the Champlain Valley outside of Burlington, fairly near where I live now. And, um, and at the break, the bartender said, I've got this fiddle for sale. And, uh, and I checked it out, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I was having to play on the back porch in the cold, you know, to check it out because they were blasting music or whatever. And I said, it's great. How much? I mean, I had no money. And I said, how much do you want for it? And he said, 150 <laughs> would do it. It turned out it was worth something more than that. But it's not a Strad. And um, it probably had no bow or anything. So, I, you know, it was fairly humble. But I kept that fiddle as my primary fiddle for about 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And and you know the relationship the, because people talk about all the time once you really start bonding with the instrument you're sharing dna i think and uh, and then it's really hard to to part from it in a way it just sounds like you even if the darn thing has got issues or falling apart or uh you know seasonal issues or whatever it's just it's it's you it's like getting a divorce when you when you move on and um, and so eventually, uh, the fingerboard was incredibly stressed, and, and it just started having buzzes and things like that. And rather than get it fixed, I used the opportunity to say, I'm actually going to get my grandfather's fiddle fixed up, still in the paper bag. And so I did, and the first time it was done horribly by somebody that really didn't know what they were doing, and it started falling apart again, and then I, I got it done well. And so I played that for a while and my wife at the time was playing it she had her grandfather's fiddle so there was a lot of sort of sharing of of our little lineage that came to us and then I, I wasn't so pleased with that and then I, just a couple of years ago I came into a little inheritance and I decided well this is the one time in my life I actually spent a little money on on a fiddle so then I, I got a violin shop fiddle for you know a few thousand dollars and that's what I'm playing now well, t- tell me about that oh yeah well I'm I just, I felt like, you know, I deserve a, quote, better instrument, you know, uh, even though I've been perfectly happy on some level playing whatever old fiddle of, you know, no intrinsic value. Um, but I just, I wanted to have that experience of having something that that tonally was a little sharper and uh, uh, clearer and more even and so forth and didn't come with issues attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> that I had to sort of get along with. So uh, I just spent a day trying out a few uh, by this maker, Deutsch, uh, Rudolf Deutsch, and um, and they, two of them sounded, to me, identical, and I had other people who were walking to the shop play it and, and just ended up buying one of those, and, and I am pretty happy with that. So I'm not going to ever be a collector. I'm not a collector of anything. In fact, I would love to get rid of stuff at this point. <laughs> um, but it, it feels like this is the fiddle I'll probably, you know, end my fiddling days with, and I'm, I'm happy about that. It's, it's clear and sings to me. Well, the thing about not collecting, that, that does interest me. 
because there is this, uh, you know, such an ephemeral quality to the uh, to fiddle music. Uh, you know, you play it for that dance, and there's that wonderful moment, and you remember, it and people there remember it, but it's gone. It's gone off. And uh, so this is, in keeping, it seems like this idea of just get rid of the stuff now, passing through, and yeah. uh, where I think in a lot of ways we take these uh, ephemeral uh, experiences that t- that move us very deeply, and we try to find ways of, of sort of grabbing it and keeping it. And uh, even some of the, um, I think, um, the mythology that surrounds some of the famous instruments, the Str- Stradivarius and the Guarneris, uh, remarkable instruments as they are, there is almost a deeper, well, here we've captured this, you know, mm-hmm. these moonbeams in this bottle and, um, you know, somehow or another. And, of course, the recording industry has changed so much uh, of how musicians, you know, I often think about, you know, so many of the country fiddlers who, would have never had an opportunity to record. It just wasn't that. Didn't exist. Right. We have no idea what they played, or no idea what they sounded like. Right. Yeah. yeah and, some of them were probably more amazing than our heroes in some way. Or, you know, I mean, it's apples and oranges, but equally amazing. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, to talk about that just just briefly, if you would, the uh, of uh, recording. Uh, oh right. So well, pursuing a career, of course, involves all kinds of. Um, concessions to that ephemeral quality or compensating things and uh, and just you know being in bands that are trying to advance their their career and then later on I became uh in the 90s into the aughts um, a producer in the folk universe up there in New England and so spent a lot of time in studios way too much time in studios punching the clock and listening to people struggling with their own issues and limitations and bands needing therapy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, <laughs> it was a different picture of the whole business. But recording on my own, um, it, it's been it's been really spotty. And some things I feel like capture the wildness and other things are intentionally refined, you know, to within an inch of their life because I had this artistic vision that I, I just felt like, you know, for my own sake, if nobody else's, I needed to pursue. So lots of production and layering and so forth that have very little to do with old time music, but answered more my writer, my writer's heart, my Uh. songwriter's heart. Uh, And I've been carrying these two, you know, somewhat competing or conflicting visions with me all my life, the singer songwriter part and the, and the old time musician part and trying to knit them together as best I could. And I, you know, there's been a couple of outings that I've had with with collaborators, bands, where I felt that was possible to do. I've never felt like 100% successful. I just don't know if you can actually be successful in that way. I, an early hero was John Hartford. I felt like he was doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't think I patterned after him stylistically or anything. But he, the fact that he was up there doing it, um, singing his own songs and playing kind of the bluegrass end of old-time music uh, or Midwestern music. It was really inspiring in that way. I think it went inside. Um, and, uh, and there's a few other folks that do it, and I'm always, I feel like they're, they're my peers, so I, I just immediately get grabbed by that. Doogie McLean's another one. You know, everybody just thinks of him as a writer now. He plays a fiddle. Um, and a lot of probably on the other side of the fence, a lot of Nashville people who are just known as country singers now but they all can play the heck out of the banjo and the fiddle and it's just it's a thing you know dolly parton can play bluegrass banjo no one knows that but um, there's all these (laughs) stories that uh sort of um you know for me reinforce the fact that you know at least it's a thing it's not some weird gene that i was born with to love both of those kind of musics and aesthetics which seem really, you know, divert, you know, just, uh, what's the word, disconnected in a way. Yeah. I think there's some brain research, and here I'm out of my depth, as I often am, uh, in these <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> but in, in the uh, connection between the, uh, the hemispheres of the brain, whatever that area is where all those connections made, and musicians have a particularly developed area there. And uh, I, you know, I find that... Uh, I'm a storyteller. I mean, I, I do a lot of that for a livelihood. 
but I'm playing fiddle tunes with my wife. We have a landing halfway, which where the acoustics are best in our house. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we go halfway up the stairs to the landing, and we play there. Yeah. And we'll be playing, and then she'll have some idea, and she'll want to talk about it. You know, we should do this or that, either about the tune. And I, I, it's like my brain, brain is frozen because I was in the tune. Yeah. And I, it's hard for me to get words. And I'm really sure I'm accessing a fundamentally different part of my brain to do that. And it's not an easy jump for right. me. And I find that, too, if I'm in concert and I'm telling a story, a folk tale or humorous anecdote, tall tale or something, and I get everybody laughing, and then I go to play the fiddle tune, I'm still trying to get this thing, and I'm 66, where I can drop into that groove. Yeah. And, and the tune's alive pretty much right out of the gate instead of I have to play it through once or twice right. before it starts to come alive. And by that time in performance... I'm done. Yeah, right. And it's like the fiddle's the same way. It's like, oh, come on. Hey, wait, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say it's like a living thing, your fiddle. Yeah, yeah. Really hard to flip back and forth. The, the thing that's enabled me to navigate, and I, I recognize that entirely, because I think that's, that's the human brain for sure, as you said. The thing that allows me to navigate is having been a teacher and a performer for so long that it's a practice. I've been practicing going from one hemisphere to the other or going from one zone to the other, the, the talking part and the, and the becoming a musician within two bars, being as good a musician as you, as you imagine that you, that you are in just a couple of bars. And teaching, you know, I've been teaching a long time, one-on-one and sometimes like here, classes and um, being able to flip right back into an analytical uh, state of mind, you know, out of playing, you know, at first blush, I mean, that's a big, it's a big leap. <laughs> and it's only through repeated practice of that, that, that I feel like I've gotten very good or being able to diagram Boeing, you know, which I have become known for among some of my, my compatriots out there at that and say it while I'm playing, you know, then I'm really so aware of what you're talking about that, uh, you know, these are like parts of the brain that don't usually acknowledge each other somehow. (laughs) They don't certainly have to function at the same time. (laughs) It's just one or the other. You know, an old joke I heard years ago, and there's some weird relevance to this, right? I'm sure. Well, I I went to college for a short time in New Hampshire, and uh, so I don't know how long ago I heard this story, but some college had a survey. They were doing surveys and going back over land grants and maps and so forth, and they um, there's a small island in the river that separates Vermont from New Hampshire. And uh, and what's that river? Connecticut. Yeah, the Connecticut River. And there's this island, and it was about 50 acres, and it was a one farm and a working farm. Oh, nice. And it was in Vermont. And uh, but they suddenly realized uh, doing all the things that, in fact, it wasn't in Vermont. It was officially in New Hampshire. Right. Well, there was this old kind of farmer. They were a, a little afraid of revealing this fact to, so they took yeah. the youngest student and said, your, "Your job, you got to tell him. He's he's no longer in Vermont. He's in New Hampshire." <laughs> and so they went up and told him and said, uh, "You know, your farm's no longer here." And instead of getting angry, he smiled and he said, "Well, that's good. I don't think I could survive another Vermont <laughs> Vermont winter." winter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm seeing Vermont and New Hampshire as the two hemispheres of a brain. Yeah. Well, that's how kind of we think about it, too. But yeah. <laughs> don't well, offend maybe, anybody. Maybe you should, um, you should donate your brain to science when you're dead, and they'll yeah. find all these uh, neural pathways that were built. Right. Exactly. Before I'm cremated, I'll get the brain out of there. Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> so what's the state? What's the state of this uh, tradition now in, in the fiddle music? You're here at this camp. and Oh, my gosh. What's your thoughts about it in this age of uh, America's got talent and, and Donald Trump <laughs> and Bernie yeah. Sanders from Vermont. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. What's the role this music can play, or oh, is it playing? Damn if I know, Joe. It's um, sometimes I think it's re- it's nothing but respite from from the rigors of navigating the real world, particularly the to me the you know very dark political landscape that that we're living in. Uh, uh, can I be really candid? I'm actually a secessionist. I'm a Vermont secessionist, <laughs> which some people think is like you should be thrown in jail for saying those words. But I, I have been for about 20 years. I, I really sincerely think, you know, that the country is not is so divided culturally and politically and and uh, 
um, you know, value-wise that I, I don't think there's a healing. And so much energy is, uh, you can stop me anytime, so much energy is used to prop up the myth of America that could be so much better used in rebuilding on a community level or a local level. So that's that informs my feeling about a lot of things, um, including artistic things, I think. And uh, But like I said, I think it's... Um, a lot of us go to music as solace, as uh, as respite from the the weariness of the world that we're that we're living in, and that is so difficult to contemplate um, a positive outcome from. Now, I spent a lot, that said, I spent a lot of time with kids, um, and have been for a long time, which is a, another another story here. But um, I've been doing that for about twenty years, mentoring kids, and uh, and and I have a band where I'm playing with one of my students that grew up. Uh, with me, and I've always got more coming along, and they have so much um, um, less angst about things, and I think that's part of why I, I love being with them, other than the excitement of passing on uh, the music, and it is my stage of life to to think about that, the legacy such as it is, but they have they have so little angst about things that we can get all eaten up by and very depressed by. Um, that it's a relief to to be around them for a while, and I feel like they're like a, a battery that I can keep hooking up to and charging myself up. Um, so that's good. So coming out to Fiddletons, I see the local youth scene here. Uh, I haven't spent lots of time, but I, I had a little jam session last night with them. Um, I'm forgetting her name, but the gal and plays in the only set, and they all grew up in... Um, Sammy. Yeah, Sammy, thanks. Um you know, who reminds me so much of some of the kids that age back home, you know, where it's just a language that they speak very well that and they they have, you know, some degree at least of respect for the sources that, that we learn from. So it's not like me or Bruce Molsky invented the whole darn thing. It's they actually know that it comes from somewhere, <laughs> which is really, <laughs> it's, it's heartening. <laughs> and, and believe me, that's work with some of the kids. That's really work because they don't care so much. Um, but, you know, we are. And, and YouTube enables them to sort of buy uh, Yeah, I mean, we had none ways. of that. It's, it's just astounding, um, you know, the access piece now and that you can just push a button and be anywhere and uh, and see anything that was ever recorded and somebody posted it and uh, how hard we this sounds like geezer talk but how hard we had to work to get to that to to finding music and how much we cherished these you know crappy little cassette tapes that we made from somebody else's crappy little cassette tape of of georgia fiddling or something like that and um and the kids nowadays they would just think that's crazy. You know, who would work so hard to to uh, find music? You can just, and they just don't live in that world. So that part, I think, you know, is it's just the evolution of of the the life that a musician can be learning in and growing in and learning in is, is just light years. And um, and yet the fact that I can sit down with Sammy and and play a tune and and explore and. Uh, have that wonderful musical conversation that you can have with another musician who, you know, who you share enough repertoire with. Uh, uh, and then I feel like I often do in my best moments entirely ageless, like age has nothing to do with it. And we're all in that moment that, you know, enjoying the music moment, we're just all tapping into some, some source. So probably comes back to your shaman comment there. Um, this, yeah. this almost, uh, not almost, but a very real experience of being out of time. Yeah, exactly. You know, of course, that would be a term if you use that in music. Where, yeah. You know, the music teacher would, oh, my God, you're out of time. Yeah. But truly to step out of this time, this linear time, yeah. into this thing that's just there. Yeah, and out of consciousness, too, mm -hmm. really. Yeah, I love that quote. Um, Purpose of music is to remove the tyranny of conscious thought. Do you know that one? I do <laughs> Thomas I have, Beecham? I haven't. Yeah. I haven't heard that for years. It's really true. Yeah, 
Tyranny of conscious thought. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't know why that rubs some people the wrong way. I guess they, they value their conscious thought and they don't want to. <laughs> it's not tyrannical for them, but I know exactly what it means. And um, Oh, well, yeah, so many of the old religious <laughs> traditions about stilling that, you know, constant murmur. Yeah. A constant uh, imagining, you know, I think almost in terms of probably the profoundest statement and is associated with Christianity, but I think it goes much earlier than yeah. that, is if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it, and if you lose your life, you'll save it. I love that, you know, because yeah. it's about imagining what you think is going to make you happy and then trying to do it versus giving that up yeah. and then letting happiness show you yeah. how it works. Yeah. When I watch the kids play now, they achieve, and they're having a jam, they're jamming, um, it's usually an extremely joyful experience. It's, it doesn't look uh, necessarily like they're working through their issues or anything like that. There's a lot of joy in it, um, and yet I know that does you know the template for um, for having the musical experience in order to tap into all these unspoken emotions is already laid. And as they go, you know, deeper into life and have probably some, you know, tragedy strike and everything that they've laid the groundwork so well. They've, they've built the house where they can have that. And, and, uh, and th that's really moving to experience that, uh, to feel like, you know, you're going to pass on. They're going to reach these various stages that you already went through. You were there with them at this kind of seminal moment. Um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't think I can top that. I'm probably going to end the whole thing there. But it's, you know, I, I took on this project because in my 20s, I was going through those, you know, what seemed to be enormous life changes, oh, yeah. uh, you know, heartbreaks yeah. and things. Yeah. I mean, true, heart, true heartbreaks, not, you know, puppy yeah. love, real stuff. Yeah. And right. the fiddle, I just clung to it. It, yeah. like it took me, it was like a little raft or a boat <laughs> that took me yeah. through very troubled waters. And uh, I think you've just stated its possibility. I sure hope that's true. Yeah. Well, thanks. How about uh, maybe you could just play me a tune, a tune? or two? Sure. That'd be great. Yeah. I'm going to play a bit of a tune written by my protege and now colleague, Oliver Scanlon. He's 21, a Vermonter. And, um, and he began to play with me when he was 10 at the Waldorf School, where I was running an after-school fiddle program. And... Um, I often say that the real business of, of mentoring is empowerment. Music is just the medium, or art is the medium, or outdoor leadership is the medium, or whatever is the activity, but, but um, drawing kids into their personal power uh, is, is the real job. So uh, he's been a, a great companion in that uh, growth for me, too. Um, so he started writing tunes himself when he was 15, and this was one of his first tunes, and he came to me saying, I've got this tune, and I think there's something wrong with it. And he played for me, and the wrong, the wrong part is an extra bar. And I thought, he's actually transcended so many years of uh, um, conscious patterning of, of writing and, uh, and just gone right to a place that everybody wants to get to. <laughs> so it's called On the Morgan Deck.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. As you may have noticed, I sometimes like to end our podcast with a quote that, to my mind, provides an insight into the relationship between art and this mystery we call life. For this podcast, I will instead end with a song that Pete Sutherland wrote and performs on his music CD, Mountain Hornpipe. I hope you can join us again soon. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Then be up and doing With a heart for any fate Still achieving, still pursuing Learn to labor and to wait Life is real, life is earnest And the grave is not its goal Dust thou art, to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Tell me not in mournful numbers Life is but an empty dream For the soul is dead that slumbers And things are not what they seem Life is real, life is earnest And the grave is not its goal Dust thou art, to dust returnest Was not spoken of a soul